Okay, you ready, AP? Ready when you are. Let's lay this baby down. Lofty, you on the guitar, mate. You right, Scope? Yep, standing by. Bertie, you on the bass? Yep, ready to go. All right, here we go then. One, two, three, four. Just two good old boys. Two good old boys. Never meeting the harm. Before he never saw the hand, no hair since the day they was born. Straighten the curves. Straighten the curves. God, we might get him, but the Lord never will. We're casting away the only way they know how. With a little more mojo than the Lord will allow. everybody and welcome to the Mojo Radio Show. Nice to have your company and we do appreciate each and every one of you for hitting the download button. Yes, that means you. The show is about finding interesting people from all walks of life, people who have their mojo working in or out of work. And what we do is we chat to them, we extract what they do best, their tips, their opinions, the tools, the things they do to get their mojo working so we can put it into our world to get our mojo working, or in fact, in some cases, be able to help somebody we know who's lost their mojo. Across the panel here in the studio is Chief Engineer Robbo. Welcome to this week's show, mate. Beep, beep. Welcome aboard the big red bus. Did you, um, did you hear that? Coming soon to the Mojo Radio Show. So our guest this week is Bernadette Schwert. Bernadette does loads of different things, including training business owners and their teams to be really good speakers, public speakers, and teaching all of us how to improve our copywriting. And that's a skill that I have been thinking a lot about for the last couple of years, a skill that I think in my mind's dying that I really want to talk to Bernadette about. Now, Bernadette also is the author of a new book called How to Build an Online Business, Australia's Top Digital Disruptors Reveal Their Secrets for Launching and Growing an Online Business. 
Bernadette has been a commentator for the ABC here in Australia, contributed to many magazines like BRW, B&T, The Fin Review here and Sky News, a recognised authority on online marketing, and we're delighted to have Bernadette with us today. Bernadette, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show. Thank you for having me. When people ask you what you do, how do you like to reply? Well, that is what I call the uh, $64,000 question because I am a, I am the slashy. I am the true slashy. Uh, so I've got, I've got the, the expression I give to my mum that she gives to her friends. Which she's in marketing. So that's kind of the generic. Um, if I'm talking to somebody, it, it depends on, to, to be honest, it depends on who I'm talking to. Yeah. So if I'm talking to people who are in the presentation skills, you know, conference sector, then, you know, I'm a presentation skills coach. Uh, if I'm talking to people in digital disruption and their startups, well, then I'm an author and I talk about digital disruption. So I guess in, in the bigger scheme, I have three categories. One is presentation skills. Two is digital disruption and three is copywriting. I I train people in the art of writing persuasive communication. So the overall banner is communication. That's a long answer, isn't it? No, I think that's where we want to go today. And I think if we start with the author, Bernadette, the author, the the book is How to Build an Online Business. And you open the book by talking about how quickly things are changing. My question is, do we get it? Do we actually understand how quickly technology is changing our world? I think it's a bit like fish don't know they're in water. And it is happening now. You know, this is not something that happened 10 years ago, this rate of change. Because I remember setting up my website in early 2000. And, you know, that was a $10,000 website. That cost now $50. So, you know, what we're doing now, everything's so fast, as we all know. And in terms of being able to keep abreast of things, people are always playing catch up. So I think we have to acknowledge we are in transitional or revolutionary times and just to embrace it, instead of trying to understand it all, just go with it, do what you need to do, do what you can. Um, Because I think there's a whole lot of issues around people feeling really anxious about they just don't feel on top of it. And so what I've come to understand is you you never will feel on top of it. Get used to feeling not on top of it and just get really clear about what you want what's important to you, how much money you want to make, and how is the best way to make that that makes you happy. And that's kind of, I guess, my recipe because if you keep looking at what others are doing and look at all the AI and, you know, the the fintech disruption and you think, how does this affect me? You know, you go crazy. I think you've just got to bring it back to what you need, what's relevant to you and work within that. There must be a point for leaders, Bernadette, I was heading out to a gig in Esk in Queensland and I was driving along the highway listening to the ABC here in Australia and there was a guy came on the line and he said, I bought the first Tesla off the boat here in Australia and I have not bought petrol for three years. And the story that followed was how the oil companies seemed to have their head in the sand trying to ignore the fact that the end is nigh where people are going electric with utes and trucks and boats and planes and everything else. Do leaders in your mind, the people you're working with and seeing, do a lot of leaders have their head in the sand in the same way? And how how do they get in front of it? Like how do they stop playing catch up 
but how do they get in front of it to not be one of those oil companies? Yeah, it's a good question. There's two questions there. One is I'm finding that the startup entrepreneurs, the ones who are really tech savvy, who are developing new and innovative products, um, and services, they are absolutely in 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 front of the game. You know, they're going to the, the conferences in Boston. They're going to, you know, South by Southwest. They're doing what they need to do and they're running at a pace. You know, they're 24-7, those, those operators. Um, the other side of it is more of the small business sector. You know, maybe the traditional accountants, the lawyers, the the people running manufacturing operations and they've they've sort of been in business for a while and now they're being disrupted by zero or by you know the fintech uh, operators and and they're not so much keeping up you know their websites are not really updated you know they're not using the latest tools they're not using social they're not uh, keeping abreast they're not even educating themselves on SEO you know how to get your website on on page one so even the basic things and I've been incredibly general here because some are obviously doing it and some aren't. But I'm just sort of generalising that um, it it seems to be even the basics aren't being looked at. And what happens is they wake up and they see that, let's take a building company, for example, you know, doing it traditionally. And then this operator comes along and they're building really light, um, flexible bricks, you know, that can be basically 3D printed on site. Let's take that example. You know, when that when that happens, you know, they'll find that their business is going down slowly and it, and it sort of starts incrementally, slowly, slowly going down, down, and then suddenly it, it's really bad. And if you're not keeping an eye on these trends, you know, you can find yourself out of business just, you know, very, very quickly. So the um, it depends on what business you're in. I think some people in those traditional industries are um, – and it's only when something goes really bad. Like I'll give you an example. One guy I, um, I dealt with, he was uh, in the car manufacturing sector and – I was talking to him and he, was, he made car parts and he, he could see the writing on the wall. You know, he could see that Holdens and Ford were going to die and he, he um, basically reiterated and he, he did things differently and he started to create a different kind of product. Sort of in the same world but for a different market. Now, they're the people I'm talking about. You know, they've got their eye on the future. They've, they've got their finger on the pulse. They're looking at trends. But it takes years, you know, to retool a factory. You know, it's not something you do over. So they're the examples I use that you've got to be going to conferences, you've got to be going to courses, keeping updated with what's going on. You know, there's tons of stuff out there, any startup space, any co-working space have amazing events on, very low cost. It doesn't take a lot to keep up to date. Even reading a book, you know, go to the airport, there's there's always, you know, amazing books coming out, even just skim those books. So I think um, to answer your question, uh, some are absolutely on top of it and they're the ones who are really – you know, killing it. Others not so much. There's a a line in the book which I really liked, and I just I'm curious to 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 know what you can see happening. You said Amazon is just getting warmed up. What what can you see happening in that space? Well, one thing that's happening that doesn't get a lot of airplay is Amazon services, and Amazon services is. Uh, as it, as it suggests, is that if you're a painter, a, a carpenter, a tradesperson, a window cleaner, um, yeah, anything to do with the trades, if you like, th- that that's coming to Australia. You know, the Amazon services where you can, a bit like Jim's lawn mowing, you know, you can go in and um, choose a supplier and you buy it through Amazon and you pay through Amazon and you have to be Amazon checked or approved in order to uh, be on the Amazon platform. So it's just like Amazon for products, but it's Amazon for services. And when I see this sort of thing 
starting to develop. Um, it, it's very concerning for the, for the service industry because what will happen is um, anyone who's anyone will need to be on the Amazon platform in order to survive and therefore Amazon's going to take their cut. Uh, it means that the consumer wins because they get a good price uh, but the, the supplier, you know, the provider, the business are going to have to cut their margins in order to compete because it's going to become a price-driven um, platform. And uh, and also you look at Airtasker, what that's done in terms of people's um, – like a builder, uh, they may have charged, you know, a premium price for a premium product and now you've got maybe a 23-year-old from Spain or Italy over here on a holiday, uploads a profile on Airtasker as a builder and they're charging a third of what this traditional builder in Australia might, might do. And, and they don't have to have qualifications, they don't have to belong to the union, they don't have to belong to the association. You know, so the impacts on, on these, pla these platforms are enormous. They're good for the consumer, but they're not so great necessarily for the business provider. The book, the book talks a lot about being an entrepreneur. And I just want to sort of dig into that, just take that little off-ramp just for a second. But the term being an entrepreneur has become very cool in the last three, four, five years. I'm a bit old school. What's the difference? Is there a difference between being an entrepreneur and I'm starting a business? Yeah, that's so true. <laughs> I, mean, really? I know. I'm, I'm old school too. Um, and I remember when I was in my early 20s and I was pretty, you know, I was freelancing back then. I'm so, I was sort of a digital nomad before it was digital. And people would say to me in a slightly sneering way, you, you're so entrepreneurial. And it was a little bit of a, you know, you're so opportunistic. You know, there's a little bit of Founded, and I thought, well, I'm freelance. I have to be opportunistic. You know, I have to look at every situation as potential business opportunity because I don't have a job. You know, I'm I'm doing my own thing, yeah. and it's really in the early days of freelancing. I remember working in my advertising agency back in Sydney, and I um, resigned and I went to another company, and then I went back to my agency as a freelancer. And it was a little bit odd. It's like, what's she doing here again? It's like, no, I don't work here, but I just hang out here, you know, and I do some work while I'm here. So. Those were the days when um, entrepreneurialism um, was not highly regarded. Now it's really highly regarded. So the difference, I guess, is entrepreneurs are people who make something from nothing. You know, they maybe operate in a higher risk environment. Um, they've also attached the word startup to it. So, you know, if you're in the startup community, that is a tech-based well, I see it as being a tech-based sort of um, sector. But, you know, I guess it's the same as being a small business operator. It's just a different flavour, a different, um, different edge to it. I just have to put you in the picture here, Bernadette. When Gary said he's a little bit old school, he actually said that as he was putting his Nokia 2110 on silent. And he still comes into the studios saying, why are there no cans of tab in the fridge? So, you know. <laughs> That might give you some insight into how little, a little bit he is. Kirks, Kirks and Tresca. <laughs> I'm still putting, you know, my pager away. I remember having a pager and I was like the only one in the office who had a pager and there was this mobile phone in the cupboard. This is the advertising agency I was mentioning. There was a mobile phone in the cupboard. There was one for the whole office and you had to 
sign a book to take it out to the client's <laughs> office. You know, these are the days. <laughs> nice. Now, what you don't understand, Bernadette, is that I'm going to sit here in the studio with Mr. Cool here, who thinks he's one of the new kids. He's wearing brute. So, I mean, <laughs> old, no, gonna, it's old spice, please. Old spice. <laughs> blue Stratus. <laughs> Remember the old Blue Stratus? Oh, How could you forget? Good, good times. Chick used to, chicks would dig Blue Stratus. <laughs> That's, That's like saying I've got I've got Nescafe Blend Forty Three and I've got the good stuff Macona. It's like I don't wear Brut, I wear Blue Stratus. Hello, with our friends at Blue Stratus. <laughs> oh dear. Anyway, <laughs> let me. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let us uh, let me get back on the freeway again. Um, if I'm the book is all about how to build an online business. If we do call this the entrepreneurial mindset to bring ourselves up with the cool kids. What is that mindset we require, Bernadette, to build an online business today? Well, I'll I'll give you an example. I was interviewing a young man uh, called Morgan Coleman, and he's got this amazing business called Vets on Call. And it's, it's basically Uber for vets. You know, vets come to your house and they look at your pet in the comfort of your own home. It's a fantastic idea and nobody was doing it. So he's done it and he's doing really well. And I said to him the other day, because I was interviewing him, I said, finish the sentence. Um, Being a startup entrepreneur is dot, dot, dot. And he said, hard. And I said, why is it hard? You know, because everyone talks about you've got to have resilience, you've got to have optimism, you've got to have, um, you know, determination and and all this sort of stuff. And so I, I went a bit deeper with Morgan. I said, why is it hard? He said, well, I'll tell you why it's hard. He said, I'm 28. I've just got married. He says, I don't have a lot of money in the bank. Everything I've done, I've put into the business. So when my friends are out there buying their new cars, they're buying houses, they're eating at really nice restaurants and drink and, and drinking nice wine, he says, I'm not. And he said, it's really hard because I'm not doing the things that I wanted to be doing at this age because I'm building my startup. And I thought that was a really good example of there is a sacrifice involved. I also think when you do get down on the ground with these entrepreneurs, as I have, not literally, of course, but, you know, sort of metaphorically, <laughs> that they're, they're tra- <laughs> that visual picture was not good. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, the visual, uh, so the the hours they work, you know, they're on a plane to America and so they're away from their family. Um, you know, that, that then there's no guarantee that the business that they're building will be profitable or be able to be sold to you know, a, a bank or whatever later on. So there's a lot of uncertainty. You have to absolutely believe in what you're doing. And, and, and everyone sort of uses that phrase, you know, you've got to believe in yourself, you've got to have passion. But the reason you have to have belief and passion is because when you wake up in the morning, no one's sort of whipping you saying, get out of bed, you've got to get to work because someone's waiting for you. You know, there's no one there to really push you except you. And just knowing that if you don't, maybe you've got two staff, you've got to cover those staff wages that month. You know, there's a hundred grand per year, maybe you've got to cover, um, you know, just for a couple of people in your office. So there's, you've got to be really inner directed to make it want to work. And, and you, you know, you guys would know, and I know for, from my own experience, you wake up sometimes and you don't want to go to work. I mean, I would love to go to an office and just sleep on the desk and go out for lunch occasionally and, you know, still be paid, but that's not what entrepreneurs get to do. Is it harder today than it was 10 years ago, Bernadette? I mean, we've, we've all been around a little while. And there is a new era of business leader coming through, which I think is terribly inspiring in a lot of cases. Is it harder today 
with the access and the competition and the way media has changed than back in the day? I think it's easier and it's harder, if I can hedge my bets there. But it's easier because if you've got an idea and you can research it pretty quickly, you can test it very quickly, build your website quickly, get social, get traction, use a social influencer. You know, you can get some runs on the board pretty quickly if you've got a good idea. And that gives you the confidence and the the sort of social, you know, the um, proof of concept to keep it going. And also people are very interested in investing now. So you may you know, really be um, ahead of the game and thinking, I want so-and-so to invest and buy off me in three years' time. That kind of mentality and ecosystem didn't exist seven to ten years ago. So people are making a lot of money very quickly, I guess is what I'm saying. On the other hand, um, the, the competition is enormous. The minute you've got an idea... It's not long before someone pops up and starts to compete with you, even if it was really unique. And all they need are deeper pop, deep, deeper pockets, uh, maybe some more money to throw in AdWords and social. And, and you know, you could be in, in, in sort of killed. So I think the other thing that's really different is it's, it's 24-7, you know. I, I watch people on the train and, and in public places and everyone is on the phone and we've all noticed this. And so that sense of it's never done, you know, the job is never finished and that you must keep on keeping on. You've got to keep prospecting. You've got to keep finding new subscribers. You've got to keep creating content, keep building the website, build new – you know, it's endless. And I think that's different to what it was 10 years ago where people could realistically switch off at 6 or 7 o'clock potentially and have a little bit of downtime. I don't think that's happening now. I think people are very switched on uh, 24-7. It's funny you mentioned a term there – it's never done. And I want to query you on that because I totally agree with you. And I want, to th- I want to think about someone who has an idea for an online business, but they never get to start and or they think everything has to be perfect before they begin or start. Talk me through minimum viable product. What is MVP and how does it fit into this equation? Well, the MVP is the minimum viable product, as you suggested. And and the purpose of it is if you have an idea and you want to test it, then you can put on a short course. You can do a little pop-up store. You can run a market store. You can send out a survey. That, that Morgan Coleman I mentioned a moment ago, Vets on Call, he went out and firstly sent a survey to his friends, just friends and family through social media saying, if you had the opportunity to have a vet come to your house to look after your pet, would you take it up? And so that kind of gave him a sense of would people do it? And then he... Um, uh, went to vets, you know, he visited vets and he asked them, would they be interested in visiting people's homes and being paid? And he actually paid out of his own pocket to um, to the vets to do the service. So he was still trialling it. He went to the dog parks, you know, he looked at other people's, you know, he talked to other people in the park about their dogs and would they use a vet on call at home. So he kind of did this guerrilla marketing research, really tested it out to see if it had legs. Um, and after a while, you know, he was the middleman, basically. He was the uh, he was taking the inquiry from the consumer who wanted the vet to visit, and then he would contact the vet and say, "I've got a customer for you at four o'clock on a Friday. Can you do it?" So he kind of became the intermediary that was eventually automated. You know, when he had the testing done and the 
proof of concept, he automated it through an app. So that's an example, I guess, of you test it. And even my copywriting course that's been in operation now for over 15 years, when I started it, it was a short course at Melbourne University. And it was just a part-time thing that I was doing. It was really a bit of a hobby. And it sold really quickly and really well because it was kind of different at the time and unique. And that was a bit of an indication for me. Oh, right, there's legs here. You know, there's a, there's a demand. And then when I had my son, I realized I can't travel and train so much. So I'll turn it into an online course. And people started to buy it. And so again, and that testing the waters, you know, I had to invest in a website to see if it was yeah. going to work. But, you know, you've got to take a risk. You've got to put some money into something. You can't just expect to, you know, build a business on nothing. I think people do think that these days. You know, you can buy a business of 50 bucks and, and get it running. I do think you need to invest a little bit. So the MVP is really just getting it out there, seeing if people buy it, and then ramp it up. Well, we've been doing that for five years with this show. I mean, I think it's fair to say we still have a minimum viable product that we're testing <laughs> after five seasons, um, and we've tipped more than 50 bucks into it, and we're not seeing dick. So um, yeah. anyway, look at the, it's good to know we're on the right track. We'll keep testing. Well, you know, people seem to like it, though. That's the thing. That's, that's what surprises well, you know, us. That's what surprises us constantly. Yeah. <laughs> it keeps like us abused. It, are you? But, you know, that, that's a good point. And that is if then if your objective is to make money from something and the business model is not there, then that's a problem, you know, and, and you're not Okay, we've got a problem. <laughs> <laughs> but you're not doing it for the money for the looks of it. This is a product. This is, you know. What does it show? <laughs> <laughs> Two good old boys never doing no harm. Um, now, there is somebody listening right now who's – sitting through this shebang and they are going, I have had enough of, like you talked about, I'm tired of going to work, doing the same old, same old, been doing it now. I want to create my own lifestyle. I want to do an online business. And they're thinking to themselves, what's the next big thing? Like what's what's going to happen? How can, I, how can I get on to the next big thing? But in the book you say that's actually the wrong question. Tell me what you think the right question is for us for that person. Well, when people say, what's the next big thing, they're hoping to stumble upon this, you know, untapped market, you know, that, that nobody knows about. The better question is to say, well, what problem exists that is not yet being solved? And the the question that I've discovered in my travels that really un- uncovers an unmet need is to say, wouldn't it be great if you know, about any product. And I remember this, the way I got this idea was I was reading um, an article in the in the Age about suitcases and this person was complaining about the suitcases on, on sale that they don't do the job that they're intended. And this guy was saying, I want a suitcase that does this, this, this and this. And he made this whole list and I thought, you know what, that is a product designer's dream. For, you know, whoever makes suitcases, if you read that, you should go and make that suitcase because uh, people that's what people want. And I remember thinking that's the key. It's like you talk to your target market and you say to them, finish this sentence about this product. Wouldn't it be great if? And let them finish it and they'll tell you what they're looking for because by definition, it doesn't exist in the market or else they'd be buying it. So it's, it's, not, it's not difficult, you know, it's to work out in your area of interest, where are people's needs not being met? 
And, and this is look at Uber. You know, it's a great example. People would say, wouldn't it be great if I could just jump in that car over there because I know they're going my direction and I'll just pay them a couple of bucks. That's the principle of Uber. And then, of course, it got narrowed down. People saying, I want Uber, but I want them to pick up my, my children. And I don't trust some Uber drivers. I want a female. I, not only do I want a female, I want a mother. You know, so that's how the mother's the, sort of the Uber, the uh, shebar.com um, mm. got started because people start thinking, what do I need? And they don't see it being met. So they do, they build it themselves. And that's how a lot of those startups get started. They think, I built it for me. Did you know that Wouldn't It Be Great If is actually the very first step of the original brainstorming model as invented by Alex Osborne and Sid Parnes back in the 60s? I did not know that. So when you... The guys wrote a book called Applied Imagination who created the actual brainstorming model, which has been butchered and all over the world in any given minute, any given day. But the very first step, and Sid Parnes, in fact, I don't know if he's still alive and or teaching, but he was, because I did some stuff with him maybe 10, 12 years ago, and he was still teaching the model. And that was the very first question you ask is, wouldn't it be great if, and that starts the proper brainstorming. So um, it's ironic. It brought back a lot of memories here. Re- oh, hearing wow. you t- say that I and also thought... reading reading in the book. Yeah, there you go. I when we do, being original. There when we go. do Mojo brainstorming sessions, every time that I throw that out, Gary comes back with, they still made tab. <laughs> do I smell Old Spice? Um, <laughs> tell me something about the entrepreneurial mindset. Where does gut feel fit into it, Bernadette? So the gut feel of when you read a lot of autobiographies or biographies, you quite often read about a a leader who disrupted or solved a problem and was then walking along or having a conversation or watching something or listening to what was being said and they pondered something, found a problem and then did it. Where does gut feel fit into this for you? When we talk about the research, testing and stuff, is, is there still a place, do you believe, for gut feel? Absolutely. And, and you've got to look at what gut feeling is or what your instincts are. And, and it really is an amalgamation of all your history, your past, your education, your experiences. You know, it, it's, it's everything that makes who you are. And the, the difference is some people are really in tune with it and other people aren't. And you look at the, the Malcolm Gladwell book, um, Blink, you know, that he talks a lot about instinct, that instinctual moment mm. where you you meet someone or you have an idea or you look at something and you have a reaction and you know the the, the smart people and the smart's probably not the right word but the people in touch with themselves really listen to it and and they act on it and that's the other thing they act in the moment so some of the best questions and best experiences I've ever had or you know the most profitable um business opportunities have been in the moment where I've met someone and I thought, I'm going to ask them this question. And the other instinct of me is going, no, no, don't ask that. That's too pushy. That's too opportunistic. That's too entrepreneurial. That's too everything. And I think, no, stuff, I'm going to ask it. And that question leads to a brand new business, you know. I can't tell you the number of times or, you know, new business opportunity, but I, I, I'm so aware of myself that I'm, I feel the instinct, I try and push it down and then I think, no, I'm not, yes, you are. And I have this little internal argument and then I just, I've got this new theory. It's like, what would I do if I wasn't afraid? And so whenever I feel anxious or frightened about asking for something, picking up the phone, sending an email because I might be seen to be too whatever, I think, what would I do if I wasn't afraid? And then I just ask it. 
you know, and, and it kind of solves my problem. And so the instinct is really so important because it's something, it's telling us, it's all our background saying, this is something you need to pay attention to. And and if the if you do deny the instinct first up, and, and building a business is a big deal, you know, you don't want to go into things lightly. But if you've got the idea still, you know, six months after you've had the idea and it's still nagging you, then, you know, do something about it. Do some research, do some testing, talk to some people, um, do the short course that I mentioned, you know, do the uh, the Etsy store or the eBay store and test it and then let it be done, you know, just kill it or, or make it live. <laughs> I've heard you talk about the wall of no. With the mind of an entrepreneur and the conversation you just shared with us, tell us about the wall of no and what we can do to deal with that. <laughs> well, the wall of no, I came up with the wall of no because in this age, we are saturated with content and everywhere we go, people are trying to sell us something. And as a result of that, the brain can't cope and it goes into this sort of cognitive cognitive dissonance and it's like, I can't take any more in. And so even fantastic things that are out there, we can't take it in. So you have to assume as a business owner that everyone's walking around with their wall of no. And in order to get through the wall of no, you've really got to be able to reach them and solve a problem that's really important to them. And if that problem, you know, is not important to them and you're, if you can't recognise what that problem is, you can't get through the wall of no. And it's, it's, it comes down to very simple things like email. You know, everyone gets tons of emails. Most of them go through the wall of no. Because you look at the subject head header and you're going, yeah, you know what? I haven't got time. Um, even if it's something really, really interesting, if it's not meeting my immediate need, then I'm going to pass on it. And you know, with emails, once it's passed, it's passed. You don't go searching through your old files to find an old email that you didn't, you know, look at it the first time. So you think about what's behind that email. Beautiful crafted copywriting, beautiful images, a CRM package, the database, you know, all the effort someone put into creating that email and then it just gets ditched, doesn't even get looked at. So this is the world we live in. We're living in the world of no. I think that's really good. I, I want to just turn from kind of the book itself into you and your background because you, you spent a lot of years in the advertising industry and you were a writer. What's the state of copywriting in business today? And do we place enough importance on writing, whether it be for websites, presentations, leave behinds, letters? Because I just, I'm just curious about it. I think words are, I watched a, a beautiful documentary on Maya Angelou, who was a poet and a performer and radio host, and the first American black American lady to speak at a presidential inauguration. And words were terribly important. She chose her words so carefully. And as a copywriter, that is your craft. How, how, how is society approaching words and writing today in marketing literature? It's mm, a good question. Obviously, I'm really biased because I'm a copywriter and I'm in the world of copywriting training. And but even if I wasn't, I would still say the same thing, and that is the power of the word is paramount. And the the words we use in a presentation, in an email, in a phone call, in this podcast, you know, it all has a resonance and it makes an impact. And I train a lot of people in copywriting. In fact, I was just training a university team yesterday, a marketing team, and there was 15 people in the room. They're all very, you know, accomplished writers. 
And yet, the work that they produce uh, is very um, corporate-focused. In other words, it's not customer-facing. And I, the example I gave them was I said, here's your front page of your prospectus or the inside page, and every sentence or every paragraph started with we. We are proud. We acknowledge. We, uh, you know, we, um, you know, rejoice. You know, everything was we. And I said, let's just take that that, those few paragraphs and convert them into a you statement, why are you? And they were a little bit like, wow, that's novel. Let's write it from the customer's perspective. Because when you write it from the you perspective, suddenly we're walking a mile in the shoes of what's in it for the customer. So I cut a long story short, we need to be walking a mile in the shoes of the customer every time we write copy. And most of us don't because we're too busy. We don't know the techniques on how to do that. And so we just write from our gut. And copywriting is an art. It's a science. It's a learnable skill. And if you spend a little bit of time learning the craft, you'll find that you get a better result. And people read your material. They listen to your presentations. You get them to do what you want them to do because ultimately it's, it's influence. And you only really need to look at the presidential campaigns. Yes, we can. Make America great again. Please explain. We decide who will come to this country. You know, they are the four phrases of Australia and America that both put those people into power or all those four people into power. So you can't underestimate the power of the word and the power of repetition as well. So I'm a nerdy word person, person, you know, and before I make a phone call, an important one, I'll think it through. What do I want? What's my intention? You know, what do I need to say in order for them to think this is a good idea? So it only takes a few minutes, but it's just a little bit of preparation before you do something to work out why would they say yes to this? So it's not hard, but a lot of people don't do it. Was there a moment that you can recall where you acknowledged to yourself, either in your mind or said it out loud or wrote it in front of you, that I am a writer. Like, I I deserve to be here. I believe in what I do. I'm not just writing words. I am a writer or I am a copywriter. Do you remember that moment? I absolutely remember that moment because I was living in Sydney and I was working in advertising, as I mentioned earlier, and I'd left and I came back to that agency and I wanted to be a writer. I didn't want to be an account service anymore. And there was in that era, it was very big deal to jump the fence. You're either account service, really, you know, corporate sort of salesy budgets and things, or you were the creative. And I remember talking to a friend of mine, his name was John, and he was both an account, he service person and a copywriter because he had his own business. And I said, John, I really want to be a writer, a copywriter, but I feel like I'm a fraud. I don't have any training in it. I haven't gone to school. I haven't gone to ad school. I just want to do it. And he said, Bernadette, he said, I now anoint you a writer. (laughs) He said, said, have you written briefs? Have you written, have you corrected copy from the creatives? Have you written a report? Have you written a school essay? Have you written a university thesis? He said, have you written that? I said, yes, 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 you are now a writer. And we had this sort of, you know, mock little sort of knighting ceremony. And I remember thinking, you know, he's right. I have to give myself that title. No one else can give it to me. I have to give it to me. And once she, once I sort of took on that and I started to actually verbalise it and said to people, oh, I'm a writer, a copywriter at the time, I felt like, oh, they're going to they're pin me down on that one. They're going to say, well, where's your background? Where's your credentials? You know, who says? And no one ever questioned me. And after a while, you get emboldened and you think, you know what? 
I'm just going to keep saying it. And then after a while, you become it. Now, that's not to say you could do that as a doctor, you know, as a lawyer <laughs> or a surgeon or a, a pilot. You can't just go around saying you're something when you're really not. But um, in this case, writing is so subjective and it's so um, – yeah, there's no constraints really. Anyone can become a writer. You just have to say it and believe it and start doing it. I guess where I'm going, Bernadette, is that people, if they are going to be an online entrepreneur and have an online business, I think people end up thinking, I have to write some words for this. I have to write a front page. I have to write an about us page. I have to write about product pages or I'll get somebody else to write some stuff about our product. But when you say, I am a writer, or I am an artistic writer, or I am a copywriter. To me, it changes the identity of the person and how you look at it, how you your phraseology, the words you choose, you make it into a craft as opposed to I have to. And it just seems to me that the majority of websites you go to are written to be exactly the same as every other website. But every now and then... You come across a website and you go, this is really drawing me through the website. I get, I don't have to work really hard to understand the backstory, what they do, why they're different, what they believe in. And I heard somebody in a podcast just last week talk about the same thing with authors. There are some books, and even I find myself, I find it really hard to read some books. And I sit there and read a page three times going, man, I'm, this is really, is it just me? Other books you pick up. And it's just, it's beautiful. It just draws you through it because the writing is just so, it's a craft. The identity must sit as a big part of that to frame yourself before you start to put words on a page. Yeah, I think it can go in two ways. You can either um, think you're a writer before you begin, you know, and and stumble through, or you can actually take some time out and learn the craft. And and I, and I say that because... Uh, as, as much as I say just a moment ago, anyone can do it, it doesn't mean everyone's good at it. Yeah. And some, some are absolutely better than others, there's no question. Some, some are better netballers than others. It's just in you, you know, and there's nothing you can do about that. And I've trained thousands of students and I see a lot of work come through and I'm always amazed at some people just got it, you know, and some people just don't. And that's not so you can't be better you absolutely can and you can learn the craft and copywriting is a craft and if you don't know it, you'll be stumbling through for years and you'll still never get it. But you've got to study the masters. You've got to study the people who've done it and that's kind of what I do is I train people on the templates. So I think it's the the identity comes through confidence and, and confidence comes through doing it and then getting some success with it as well. Kevin Kelly, Kevin Kelly the editor-in-chief of Wired Magazine, talked about writing. And he said, if you want to be a better writer, read more books. And if you're going to read more books, read by read about the greats. So read about the greats who were masters of their craft and go back through the times and read those good books and read them over and over. That's one example that someone I heard talk about how to develop your own writing as a writer. What else would you suggest someone do in order to improve their craft as a writer? Well, I, I think reading is important, but I do I actually think it's a little bit overrated. You know, they say about authors, you know, if you want to be a great author, read great books. I would say go and write. You know, a lot of people say, I haven't got time to read because I'm writing. And I think there's truth in that as well. So I think there's a, a bit of a blend. Um, honestly, get training. 
and I'm not trying to be self-serving and promote a cause, but I'll give you an example. I needed to upskill myself in a particular aspect of marketing recently, and I was sort of stumbling around with it. I knew a little bit about, I knew a fair bit about it to start with, but I just didn't have a system. And I went to an organisation, I paid my thousand bucks, and I did my course, and it was the best thing I ever did because I walked away with a system. I walked away with knowledge knowing this is best practice. This guy I, I had the training from was amazing. He was he, he lived it, breathed it, he knew it back the front. So I left going, you know what? I've just saved myself hours and weeks and months of fumbling around. I've got it from the best. So I honestly think training is underestimated. It's like people want to learn something, go and learn it. If I want to be a better person at bookkeeping, go to a bookkeeping course. Don't don't just read about it. Go and train under someone who can teach you it. That That's honestly my advice because uh, you can sort of fumble around, but you've really got to pay your money. Also, pay money because yeah. when, you, when you pay money, you value it. You turn up for a start. You've, you, know, you want to get something back. You demand something of the trainer and, and you want to use it in your own life. But if you don't pay, if you do all the freebie courses, you end up not committing to them because you don't value them. If we talk about the online business world, you've said that platforms like freelancer.com or eBay or these sorts of sites can help or hinder small business. Just take us through that. Just take us through that. How how can they help or hinder? Well, if you've got an idea for a business and you don't have a lot of money and you want to build a website just to get it out there and test it, then go to Wix and Weebly or go to Web Developer from the you know from the Philippines and build something you know reasonably cost effectively. In that process, you will learn a great deal. You'll learn what not to do. You'll learn what to do. It's not a big investment and you'll think, oh, I won't do that again. If you have a serious business idea, you know, and you've really got to start strong, then you may want to hire a proper developer. You may want to hire a proper content creator, um, you know, get a business name, be PTY, LTD, you know, do it properly from the get-go. But I think those platforms are really helpful for people who are sort of just putting their toe in the water, who don't want to invest a lot. And maybe just got a hobby. You want to have a bit of fun. And you'll learn a lot, you know, just by actually reviewing three web developers' profiles. You'll learn a lot about what you need. So I think they're absolutely valuable. Um, and also the other thing is once you do know what you're doing, when you do know what you want, um, you can be very specific about finding the right person globally and getting them at a good price. But that assumes you know what you want and you know how to assess their their services and being able to monitor them even though they might be working remotely. Should I confess that after 23 years in business, Voodoo Sound is still a Wix website? <laughs> <laughs> That's actually an interesting point, Bernadette, because I, I spoke with a guy just yesterday who had used a traditional platform to build a business, which is successful. Then he said, I want to go to 2.0. So he got a developer, invested a ton of money, everything into it. And it turns out that this guy didn't deliver anything and has disappeared to the point now where the lawyers can't even issue him with a uh, uh, what do they call it? A, um, a warrant to go or to whatever. court. A yep. warrant. You can't even issue him with a warrant to go to court. You can't find him. So his whole thing is he trusted the wrong person. Simple as that. He trusted the wrong person, put everything into it, and he has no platform and no money. You just talked about the fact that you find a developer, you do your due diligence to know you've got the right person. Man, that that's 
that's really, because they can be working remotely, that is really tricky, isn't it? It is, and it's a risk. And I, I, if I get one, ask, ask one question, probably the most from students, it's what platform should I build my website on and how do I choose a good developer and do you know one? And they are excellent questions. And I think if you're going to use someone from Estonia or Lithuania, or Russia, you know, any part of that sort of Eastern Europe or any kind of Southeast Asian country. And I'm not being, you know, geographically um, racist or anything. It, it, the reality is they're not in your back, they're not in your background, you know, they're not in your, in your neighbourhood. You can't just pop down there and say, where's my website? And, and even if they were in your neighbourhood, they could still shut up shop and, and fly by night. So, so the reality is you just no matter who you pick, you've got to do your due diligence and you've got to treat it like a partnership. And I actually think it's like a little bit of a marriage, your web developer, because you're with them for a long time and they are integral to your success. And if you don't like them as people, if you're not happy to pick up the phone and talk to them and enjoy you know, that conversation with them, then it's going to be tricky because they can really help you take it to the next level. And it's very unfortunate that, you know, you're your colleague had that experience because uh, it's like any supplier. You've got to be able to pick them, you know, pin them down. So by default, from what you're saying then, are we better off going through a Fiverr or an eBay or somewhere like that where you've got some level of protection? Well, I think you do get protection, but only for a certain period of time. You know, with eBay, I think it's 90 days, isn't it? Mm, yeah, something um, like that. I think if you're transacting through them consistently, where Fiverr keeps tabs on that transaction, but once, you know, you've kind of got your website up and running, most people go around the website, don't they? They go around the platform and deal direct, and that's when things can go wrong. But it's like everything, I guess, you know, even your friend, you know, even if you pay good money, you may not get what you, you wanted. So I think it's about your instinct again, isn't it? Your gut instinct saying, do I trust this person? Um, what's their track record? Speak to their references. Speak to people who've already worked with them. All the basics you do if you were hiring someone for a job. So is there an argument based on this to say, do your own? Is, is there an argument to say, take the time, learn the craft, learn to write, learn to do it yourself, extend yourself and actually do a, a Weebly website, which can be, there's some beautiful templates and they're easy to use. Is there an argument to say that we should do that? Yeah, that's a tricky one because I think it depends where you are in your career. You know, if you are in a hurry and you've got big plans, big ideas, you may not have the time to invest in understanding, you know, a WordPress platform, uh, how, to, how to use publishing, um, design, software packages to learn a copywriting course. You know, there's a lot of skill sets involved right there. Um, having said that, I think there is a, a middle ground. And I'll give you an example is um, like my website, for example, I uh, just recently upgraded it and it, it's a WordPress platform. Uh, but my developer said, you know, you really should know how to change your content. And I said, I know. He said, so I'm going to make you do that. So we've, you know, he's trained me on that and I've trained my personal assistant and other people so that I don't have to do it all the time. But even me going in, knowing a few of these little tricks on how to change the headline, how to do this, it's so empowering because yeah. if I need to do it, I can do it. I don't want to do it. I don't plan on doing it, but I can. And and the other thing, once you have a little bit of knowledge, is you know how long it takes. So if you do get other people to do it, then you you hold them accountable. And they're saying it's 10 hours to do it. So no, no, it's an hour. So let's get that clear. You know, so you can 
be a little bit more robust with your conversations with your suppliers that they're not ripping you off. Not that I might PA would rip me off. I'm not suggesting that. But, you know, just understand it. That would be very sad. <laughs> but, that, you know, just in terms of knowing, knowledge is power, but I'm never going to develop the whole website from scratch. I just know I'm never going to do that. I'm never going to learn how to design yeah. a proper brochure or, you know, edit a proper video. I just know I'm not going to do that. So, I then have to take the risk of hiring people and hoping they do the right thing by me. But I think there's there's got to be some level of um, acknowledgement that you've, you've got to know a few things along the way. And look, Tony Nash, who runs Booktopia, is a great example. When he started his Booktopia uh, book buying website, he did everything. You know, him and his brother-in-law um, did everything. And he's he didn't even hire a, a PA until not that long ago. You know, and this is a $100 million business. And he said he did it all because, one, they couldn't afford to hire others. But secondly, he wanted to know how to do it so that when they did bring in their suppliers, they, they could uh, be accountable. So I think there's a blend. You, you may not want to do everything. Do you think we're becoming a bit more sceptical about products and services based on influences? I mean, there are now websites where you can go in and basically pick and choose influences and they'll do a piece of video and in super slow-mo walk by the pool with a can of their drink in their hand and gracefully <laughs> sip from it and, yeah, all this sort of stuff. Where's that sit at the moment? Are we as a, as, as a community, as a generation, are we becoming more sceptical to this stuff that, you know, we know these people are being paid to flaunt it with their two, two million followers on Insta. Where, where are we at with all that sort of stuff? Yes, I know exactly the websites you're referring to and I think it's sort of like the pendulum is swinging and, you know, we had this mass market advertising and everyone didn't believe it because it was just a corporate statement and people relied on word of mouth. You know, people said, oh, this is a really good cafe or it's a really good uh, web developer, you know, use them. And then it's sort of word of mouth is really on steroids now with these social influences. And it's got to the point, and I think it'll get to the point pretty quick, where people say, I don't trust it anymore because I know you're a paid sponsor, a paid advocate. Um, and the whole thing about word of mouth works when you trust the person who's giving you the information. And once that trust, firstly, if it's not there in the first place, that's a problem. But secondly, if the trust is broken because we can see it's a strictly you know, financial transaction, really, we're just coming back to the mass marketing model again. Uh, it's just done on social. So I, I think it has potential for small businesses who really want to get their word out quickly to a large group of people, then it comes down to who you pick as your social influencer. Like I would never pick Kim Kardashian, you know, I mean, considering the money that it would cost to get her because people just know. it's yeah. it, she, she may not love it. She's just doing it for the cash. I'd rather pick someone who's maybe got 3,000 followers who really loves my product and when they say something, it's true. Kim Kardashian, big fan of the show. Big fan of the show. And um, just, Kim, that, that the views that Bernadette has are not shared by the producer, Robbo, of the show. Uh, that was purely Bernadette's personal opinion. He does not share that. Otherwise, he'd have to take down all these pictures off the wall of the studio. Oh, that's right. And keeping up the, with the Kardashians, I mean, you know, my, my fetch box is just full of episodes of it. Kim, oh, Kimmy, 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 we call her. Kimmy, she Kimmy. loves the brute. She loves the brute. Yeah. Not you, the brute. Brute the perfume, the aftershave. <laughs> look, Kimmy. Probably, yeah, it's probably a wrong statement to make because lots of people want Kim to endorse their products. But I think when she wears it genuinely, 
you know, I think that's a different story. <laughs> it's too late. You already dug your own grave. You already I'll, dug I'll the be hole. honest with you. You're I think, I'll you're be in. honest with you. I think you're absolutely right. <laughs> you nailed it completely. But you know, um, <laughs> as as a former advertising person who's been around the advertising game for a bit, back in the day, PR was an actual thing. There were agencies. It was about writing a great release of a great story, great placement, and it was quite powerful. Today, everybody's on social. You can send stuff out in a millisecond without any really great thought or strategy. Where is where is the PR agency today? Is there still a place for PR? Do you think there is still a need to have a PR agency working for your brand or your product, your service. I'm always curious because I, I kind of hear them around the place, but I'm just wondering whether they're just writing content for social. Like what's your view on that? Yeah, I am seeing a, a explosion of PR agencies um, coming into the market and it is this weird blend of copywriting, content creation, um, video, social, uh magazine, TV, you know, it's kind of like um, – and also it's now really hooked into SEO because if SEO is very much connected to um, citations, you know, how many people are mentioning you, uh, where are those mentions being placed and, you know, if the mentions are done on the right website or the right platform, it can be enormously valuable uh, in terms of getting up to the top of Google. And so PR in terms of SEO is a very valid and legitimate service. And if you can have a a publicist who gets you mentioned and featured on really reputable um, sites that have got a very high sort of Google ranking and high um, uh, domain authority and page authority, then uh, that's that's money worth paying for. You know, that's that's money worth paying for. That's interesting. I'm very mindful of your time. Uh, the book is called How to Build an Online Business out through Wiley and the subhead was Australia's top digital disruptors reveal their secrets for launching and growing an online business. Where where do you send people to find out more about you and or track down this book, Bernadette? Well, they could go to my website, uh, bernadetteschwert.com.au or my other website is howtobuildanonlinebusiness.com.au. And that will show them, tell them everything they need to know. Where does that surname come from? What's the nationality? Uh, it's German and uh, it means sword. <laughs> Is that right? So you're a writer with the, with the surname of sword. Is the pen mightier than the sword? Oh, what a great way to end. Oh, I think it is. Yes, it is. <laughs> Written on the back of a Tim Tam packet. Just that that is gold. That is gold right there in there. Hey? Yeah, oh, goodness God. me. Bernadette, uh, I've really enjoyed chatting with you. You've got a beautiful energy. Uh, the book is is actually really, really interesting. And I think regardless of whether you have an online business or not, it's a good read because, as we said at the head of the show, as we say in the business, uh, we should know about this stuff. And what I find today is that great leaders read widely and they read on lots of different topics. And I think we all 
need to be across this stuff. And it's a really great summary of everything we need to be thinking about, whether we have one or don't, whether we're buying from one, whether we're seeing them. So uh, well done. Great book. Thanks for coming. Thank you so much for your time. It's been, uh, you, feel like, you feel like an old mate of the studio already. Oh, look, thank you guys. I had a ball. I had a real laugh having a chat. So thanks for having me. The Mojo Radio Show. That was a fun interview. Yeah. Do you know, I, I, I just realised that I actually haven't reached my full potential after doing that interview. <laughs> because, well, after the interview, we were having a bit of a banter and Bernadette actually worked at the same advertising agency as I did for a while, a bit before my time. But yeah, so maybe there's something there. Maybe I'm not reaching my full potential. Back in the day. Back in the day. Blueberries. She knew it very well, funnily enough. And speaking of which, I remember, and I'd, it'd have to be 20 years ago. Poor Jesus. Yeah. From being, I'm serious, don't know, 20 years ago. I was only 12. And it was one of the first <laughs> dates I took my wife on to Selena's. Oh, wow. Which was a famous rock venue on the beaches yep. in Sydney. Yep. I was two rows from the front and I watched this guy play. Ah, oh, wow. First time I saw him would have been Newcastle Entertainment Centre, but he rocks, can I just say. So here's a clip that Robbo found on the weekend of George Thorogood and the Destroyers, and George is talking about the backstory to that song, Bad to the Bone. There it is. Wah, 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 Bad to the Bone. Well, I'm here to t- today to talk about this song, which came out in 1982, Bad to the Bone. I did a little research on the on, uh, uh, background of this uh, particular statement. When I was a kid, I was in a band, I was a, in Delaware, and, I, and, and I, I played a lot of baseball. And I was a kid who was a couple years older than me, named Jerry Street. And I kind of lost track of Jerry, and we were playing a gig at the uh, University of Delaware when I was like in the 10th grade. And I was in a band called The Quiet Ones, and I played bass. And Jerry came up out of nowhere, and he kept saying over and over, Georgie, you, got, you really sound bad. You got a bad sound. This is, this is really bad. And I kept saying, and Jerry, what? I thought we were pretty good. And he kept saying, no, it's bad, it's bad. And then I got it. I said, bad is like the new cool or the new groovy or hip, if you can follow that. And that's what he was trying to say. So the word kind of stuck in my head. So after that, we all started using it, you know, like, um, uh, let's say, uh, Sandy Koufax is great, Frank Robinson is bad. See, it was a difference. What he doesn't mention in there, Gary, is that he's actually partly about me as well. <laughs> yeah, well, you got that right. But I th- you know what, what, what occurred to me with that little piece of the interview was the difference between what do you think of the band? They're, they're great. What do you think of the band? Yeah, they're good. But when he goes, they're bad, doesn't that just bring a different context or perception of something when you change the language? And when you send it over to me to have a have a listen to or to watch, it's a YouTube clip and I'll put the link to it in the show notes if you want to have a look at the whole interview because George is bad. But the reason for playing it out is, well, actually, in fact, we don't need any great reason to play George Thurman. No. <laughs> <laughs> However, the other thing I think we need to be mindful of is the voices inside our head because the words you say to yourself or the words you say to others, that dialogue 
creates a belief and the belief you have in your mind creates a behaviour and the behaviour shows up in your actions. So when you think you're bad, which is super good or super cool, then what happens is you create a belief and that belief then shows up in behaviours and then you start to act like you are bad. So I think we need to be really careful of what that internal dialogue we have for ourselves. And this is a rock and roll way of approaching that. And especially with kids, because kids take on what we say to them. And when you say something like bad, then don't you reckon it brings in a certain emotion and Mm. it gives it colour of passion, it changes the perception of the description you're giving something? Absolutely, yeah. So with that in mind, we don't need... A lot of reason to play a bit of George. No, especially I think we might play the live version just since we were talking about seeing him live. We're out.
Radio Show is produced and recorded in the studios of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at the Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. For more about Gary, see GaryBurtWhistle.com or to polish your next audio or video production, check out VoodooSound.com.au and for the right voice, RealtimeCasting.com. Andrew Peters speaking. See you next time. <laughs>